back here this evening. Had a great uh, lunch with the Elwert family, and uh, we were well fed, not fed up, but well fed, and uh, so we're glad to be back here this evening. There were two men who felt mistreated by people in authority. The first was a man in an authority position that felt slighted by his superiors. He spoke out against what he perceived to be unethical behavior by a, a fellow coworker, but instead of reward, he received punishment from those that were above him. His theory, or what he thought happened, was that they were covering up to protect themselves at his expense. So that was the first man. The second man also had influence of those around him. He was innocently taken into custody by the authorities for questioning. He had done no wrong, and in fact, he was a very beneficial member of society, helping a number of people. Envy and bitter rivalry from community leaders um, were the only reasons he could perceive as to why he was arrested and treated unjustly. And the question I have for us tonight is, have you ever felt unjustly treated by those in authority? Have you ever been fed up with local or national government leaders that seem like they're failing at the one job they have, which is to represent the very people that elected them and that put them into office? Maybe it was a boss at work that takes advantage of you because you claim to be a Christian, someone who follows God and follows his word, and so maybe he or she takes advantage of that, and um, whether mocking you or um, somehow putting you at disadvantage because you claim to be a follower of Christ. Maybe someone, it's a, it's a teacher or it's uh, someone in instruction type authority that um, seems to delight in picking out problems or faults in you and pointing those out. Or maybe someone has had a bad experience with a church leader, a pastor of some sort, who abused the authority that he had been given, taking advantage and manipulating people in the circumstances that he was in to the disadvantage of those church members. Well, we all have circumstances in our lives where we feel like we've been unjustly treated by those who have some type of authority or some type of power. So the question is, how can we respond in a way that honors God? This morning, we talked about how we respond to life circumstances in a way that, that honors God and actually praises his name because of his character, because of who he is. And when we recognize that, it changes the way we think. It changes the way we live. So this, uh, this evening, I'd like to look at one specific situation in which we find ourselves um, in a predicament because of the abuse of others or because of the mismanagement of authority of other people in our lives. If you have your Bibles, if you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24, I'm doing a double dose of the Old Testament um, today. So 1 Samuel chapter 24. In this scenario, David is in a situation like this where he is being oppressed by King Saul who has an authority position in the nation of Israel. And in this scenario, David has really the perfect opportunity to seek revenge upon Saul. And if you're familiar at all with um, the narrative at this point, David has been running for his life. Saul, it, at every point, has been trying to kill him, has been trying to remove him from the scene. Ultimately, Saul knows that David has been anointed to be the next king. He wants to get rid of him and get him out of his line, um, out of the line of being the king. So David is running for his life, and he finds himself, we see, um, uh, the word comes, or 
the very end of chapter 23. David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. This region um, was really an oasis in the middle of the desert. It's uh, just north uh, west of the Dead Sea. And all around is just barren rocks and, and desert area. And then all of a sudden you go down into this valley and it's, um, it was a beautiful oasis. There were natural springs there, all kinds of different caves and, and rocks and things like that. And um, we'll find out later in the text that uh, many shepherds would keep the sheep down in this valley area because it was very plentiful as far as grass and different things. So David and his men are on the run, and this is the perfect spot for them to hide away. And so they do. So Saul is in hot pursuit, chasing him here into, into the desert. Let's read um, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. By the way, David and his men, roughly 600. So they're uh, outnumbered about five times. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. And uh, we won't elaborate on what Saul was doing there, but he basically was in a very vulnerable position, okay? (laughs) It was a great opportunity for David to get rid of him and to get him out of the way. And his men brought this to his attention. Notice verse 4. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. So David's men are, I'm sure, reminding David of, Look, we've been on the run from this king, from King Saul, for weeks, possibly months. Um, he has threatened us. He's threatened our families. He is trying to destroy us. And now he is here in a vulnerable position. He doesn't know you're here. This is the perfect opportunity to seek revenge. And notice the language that they kind of cloud this in. They say, this is what the Lord has said to you. I'm going to give the enemy in your hands. And we don't know exactly where they got this from. Um, it's possible that this could have been something that David actually pinned Maybe some type of message from God, a song that he wrote perhaps, or something of that nature. So it actually is possible that this was some type of message from the Lord originally that David had been given. And regardless, his men are saying, this is God's hand of providence. He has put Saul here for you just to get rid of him, get him out of our lives. But we notice um, the response that David has. And as we look at this response, I want us to be thinking, okay, um, I don't think any of us are going to be anointed king anytime soon, right? Uh, we're probably not fleeing for lives or have ever fled from our lives in this, in this way. But how do we respond when we feel mistreated or disrespected by those in authority? So let's look at David's response here. Starting uh, the very end of verse 4. It says, Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. So you can imagine the men afterwards like, Are you kidding me? This was the perfect chance. And he let him go. He just he let him escape but it says that David did not allow them, he persuaded them, did not allow them to touch 
King Saul and put um, and end his life, put his life in danger. So what what was the reasoning? What was the basis for David to do this? Clearly, it wasn't because he thought Saul was a nice guy, right? And there's there are many levels to the story. Just one quick aside. The irony here is that Saul is actually David's father-in-law, right? <laughs> so not only is he king, not only is he trying to kill him, it's actually his father-in-law, right? So we can bust out all the father-in-law, mother-in-law jokes, right? Um, so this is a really tense, very difficult situation David finds himself in. Um, anyway, so just the irony of this situation um, that he finds himself in. So it wasn't because Saul was a nice guy. In fact, it wasn't just because he was his father-in-law, because he really wasn't acting like a very good father-in-law. So what, what um, reasons motivated David to spare Saul in this way? And for us, what examples can we learn of how we ought to respond to those in authority who abuse their power? The first thing is that we must respect those who wrong us because God sees everything. First of all, we see under this that, that David had respect for Saul's position. Um, verse 8 through all the way down to 15, David gives his response. Notice in verse 8 it says, um, David afterwards arose, went out of the cave, called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the King. I don't know about you, but it would be really hard for me <laughs> if somebody was trying to kill me and I had him there in that situation. I, I was merciful. I let him go to respond in a respectful way like David does. My Lord, the King. Acknowledging that he is still King, he is still Lord, in the sense of lowercase Lord, that, that God has put in this place. So he had respect for Saul's position. In verse 6, verse 10, verse 11, um, um, I'm sorry, 20, chapter 26, verse 11 and 16 and 23, David uses this phrase, the Lord's anointed. David realized that God had put him in this place. So who is he to raise his hand against God's anointed? And we'll talk about in a minute our response to the people God has put in our lives and the respect that we ought to show. So he showed respect for Saul's position. He showed humility. He, in verse 8 it says, He bowed down before him, bowed his face prostrate to the ground, showing respect and honor, not because of his character, not because of his actions, but because of the position that God had placed him in. So we might say, okay, David showed respect, but Saul was a king, right, in a, in a monarchy that God had set up. God had specifically chosen Saul. But what about our president? What about a boss? What about a parent or teacher or someone in authority that way? If they abuse their authority, do they deserve our respect too? Briefly, um, let's look at a couple of these examples. So the government leader, Romans 13, is clear and when it says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority, no authority, except that which God has established. It says that they exist, um, the authorities that exist have been established by God. So the one who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do will bring judgment upon themselves. He goes on to talk about taxes and, and different aspects of of, um, of the government. So even if we disagree with whether it's gun control, gun control laws, economic decisions, moral issues that we rightly should be um, righteously um, indignant about, we must still respect the authority that God has given to them. And we'll talk uh, later about some practical ways that we can do that. 
I think the same principles would apply to a boss as well, someone in authority. Ephesians 6, Colossians 3 are very clear that we ought to show respect and honor for those God has put in our place, obeying our masters with respect and fear, just as you would Christ. Ephesians 6 commands children to obey and honor their parents. And by the way, here, as well as in the Old Testament, that didn't stop when you turned 18. Okay, the dynamics change, right? We obey in a different way. We honor in a different way. But clearly from Scripture, that concept, that command, doesn't change when we move out of the house. We are still to honor and respect in that way. A pastor or a church leader, 1 Timothy 5.17, elders who direct the affairs of the church well are, well are worthy of double honor. And some of you might say, well, that's a problem. They're not ruling well, so they shouldn't get double honor. But 1 Thessalonians 5 says, hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So because of the, the opportunity, the position that God has placed pastors and church leaders in our lives, we ought to show respect. We ought to honor them. Not simply because of they're a good person, we like them, they're great, because God has placed them in that position, so we should respect them. But the ultimate reason we ought to respect, yes, it is because God has placed them in that position, But it's ultimately because God has the ultimate authority. So we ought to respect, have respect for God's authority. God had given Saul authority and saw everything that David or that Saul did to David. And at some point David had to have realized that even in this difficult position, God sees everything. We talked this morning about God is a God who can see everything. He's in control. He's omnipotent in that way. So he is a God who sees and has authority. David says in verse 6, Far be it from me, or the Lord forbid that I should do this. Because David knows it's not just about me and Saul in this cave. He says there's something, there's someone bigger than just us. God sees everything. And God notices the situations we find ourselves in. So how do we respond in these situations? Our responses reveal where our trust lies. Because if we think it's just a matter of me and the person in authority, then we can excuse a lot of things away, right? It's just me and him. But if we see that God is in control, that God has placed these people in positions where they are, then we'll have a different perspective and we'll respect them and show the honor that they deserve because of where God has placed them. So David let let God be the judge and so should we. Okay, so the question, though, that I ask myself and that you might ask is, so does that mean whatever authority says we just do? We just blindly follow regardless of the action, regardless of the, the degree of maybe moral um, aberration, however they go off past of what God has said. We just, they're in authority, so I must do it. I just have to do it. Um, even though David acknowledged God's authority and respected Saul in the position that he had, we do see in this text that David rightly defended himself and his honor and his position before Saul. So let's see that. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today in, in my hand in the cave. 
And some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch up my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And then he goes on in verse 11. Now my father, see, look what I have done. Again, father could be a respect term, but actually, if you remember, he actually is his father-in-law. So he's saying, look, I did not kill you. You know that I could have killed you. You know that I could have taken your life, but I chose to have mercy on you. And I chose to respect you in this way. In verse 14, David really shows how ridiculous Saul has been behaving. He says in verse 14, After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? He's saying, Saul, you are the king. You are in control. You are the ruler of Israel. Why are you coming after me? Why are you acting in this foolish way? You're taking thousands of men pursuing me in the mountains and the desert and through the caves. Why are you doing this? So David stood his ground and defended himself, trying to show Saul how ridiculous he was being in mistreating him and the, the authority that he was being given. We see also that David sought for just treatment from Saul. He, um, he desired for Saul to give up and to stop killing him, obviously. Um, he says, the second half of verse 11, he says that there is no rebellion in my hand. I am not coming out to kill you, Saul. I'm not out to get you. And actually, in verse 17, Saul himself attests to David's upright behavior. Notice verse 17. Saul says to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt, uh, uh, excuse me, dealt wickedly with you. So Saul even admits that David is the upright one here. That David is the one that has shown respect and honor. And then finally, David asks for safety. He asks for safety from Saul. In a parallel passage in chapter 26, um, David says he pleads uh, that he is an innocent man before Saul. And he pleads that Saul will not let his innocent blood fall to the ground from the presence of the Lord. So in this situation... David shows respect, right? He doesn't kill him. He doesn't take justice into his own hands. But he also takes a stand and tries to demonstrate to Saul, look, I have been upright here. I have been pure in my actions. So why are you coming against me? Why are you falsely making these accusations that I'm trying to kill you or trying to rebel against you? So my question is, do we take this as a prescription that this is how we ought to act? So David defended himself, therefore we should defend ourselves. And if so, how do we know how to do that, right? So should we protest anytime we disagree with a local leader? Should we, um, children to parents, should we protest, right? Should we march around the living room and picket every time we don't agree with something? Do we have to stand up for our rights? Okay, I think all the parents in here would say no, right? <laughs> well, that is not that is not what this text is saying, okay? Don't get any ideas, right? Um so how do we appropriately respond when we are mistreated um, by other people? Well, I don't, um, I don't think it means we sit silently and um, don't act or don't respond in any way. And I'd like to show you that from a few examples in the New Testament. Um, we won't turn there for lack of time, but Acts 16.37, Paul is unjustly, um, unjustly uh, pr- in prison, and he says to the officers, He says, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. 
and they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Context is in Philippi. And they've been arrested simply on trumped-up charges that they were going to cause a rebellion and stirring up the people in that way. And so Paul and his, his men, they could have quietly left town. They could have slipped away and nothing more would have been said. But they actually um, defend themselves and say, no, they, we are Roman citizens. They beat us without cause. They imprisoned us without any reason or any cause. There was no trial. There was no defense given in this way. And the, the bigger context, probably the reason why Paul did this, was so that the, lead, the believers who were left behind in Philippi would not think that it was started by some rabble-rouser, some rebellious um, Jewish guy who was going to start trouble. And therefore, their name as believers, as followers of Jesus, would be attached to this crazy, rebellious guy. So Paul was, by standing up, he was actually not just defending himself and the men with him, he was actually, in a sense, protecting the believers who were left behind in that way. We have two other examples of this, Acts 22 and Acts 25, where Paul defends himself against these, um, these Roman leaders and authorities, probably not, just, not simply to save his own life, but to give a, a good word or a good reputation for the believers, the other Christians that were there. Jesus, when he was wrongly, um, wrongly imprisoned, wrongly on trial, before the Jewish authorities defended his innocence. In John 18, he says, or it says about him, again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Again, in John 18, verses 20 and 21, Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. So in this sense, Jesus is just explaining, here's what happened. I spoke these things openly, so you're bringing these false charges against me. Um, And he testified of what truly happened. Obviously, we know in his case, the men didn't care because they were bent on, on destroying him and killing him. One text that might come up um, in our thoughts, in our minds here, is Matthew 5, 38-42. Specifically, the idiom of turning the other cheek. Right? So how do we deal with that passage? So Jesus says, if someone, if someone um, hits you, slaps you on the one cheek, you turn the other cheek in that way. This wording specifically was used of a backhanded slap across the cheek. So usually with a right-handed person. So the idea is that they slap you once, this idiom is, They slap you twice. They slap you again with the backside of their hand across the cheek. It was a severe insult in the Jewish culture and the custom of that day. So I I don't think what Jesus is saying here is that we can never defend ourselves when people accuse us of something. It seems best to apply this when we interact with people. So we're followers of Jesus. Jesus is saying you should be willing to be wronged by people and be maligned by people for the sake of Christ's name. But I don't think we can stretch that and say that any time someone in authority falsely accuses you, that you can't stand up and testify of what is truly happening or what is really occurring in this way. 
The question, though, that we, that we have to think through, and it's a matter of discernment and wisdom, is where do we draw this line? As I said before, where do we draw the line of standing up for what is truly happening and defending the cause of justice? If we look back in, in church history, we can think of Jewish believers in, this, in, in Paul's day there who were under Roman rule in the time of Christ. How, how were they supposed to manage this issue? Or we could think of Christians um, in the colonial era of our own country in the 1700s, right? So they're, they're believers, they're followers of Christ, and our fledgling colonies here are sensing oppression from foreign powers, right? July 4th coming up soon. So what were they to do when faced with choices of, of rebellion in the sense of political leaders? Or what about European Christians during the atrocities of the Nazi regime? How were they to respond to authorities um, that were in place in that day? And actually, all around the world today, there are believers currently who are facing this type of predicament. How do we respond in a way that honors God, even if it means giving up our lives? Do we defend ourselves in some way? How, how do we defend ourselves in a way that honors God, but also um, allows us to live and the opportunity to, to proclaim the gospel? In our scenarios that I opened up with, what do we do with the issue of homosexual marriage, legal equality in our own day? It's, it's becoming, it is, a significant issue that we as believers will face, or abortion legislation. I think that, I believe that we can take a stand on these issues, but the, the thing that we ought to think through is why and how we take that stand. We ought to use wisdom and discernment. We can write letters, we can spread accurate, truthful information in this way, defending the cause, but we must do it respectfully. Again, respecting the authorities, respecting the positions that people have been placed in. What about your boss who tries to take advantage of you in those situations? I think you can rightly go and give your grievance to him. Maybe it's an email, maybe it's a conversation, a phone call in that way. But what, what, this, uh, what isn't helpful to the name of Christ is if we spread that same information around the water cooler, right, and, and gather, uh, gather a consortium of people who are just like you and you're rubbing off on each other and, and raising that in that way. That is not honoring to God, honoring to Christ. If there are issues with parents or teachers or even those in, in a leadership position in a church, the right thing to do is that we go and talk to them and deal with these matters, but not that we take vengeance into our own hands and justice into our own hands. In, in many of these scenarios and cases, it really is a matter of wisdom in the situation we find ourselves in. But what it shouldn't be, at the bottom line, what it shouldn't be is taking justice into our own hands. And so in, from that, we can learn from David's example of realizing God has put those people in that authority, and therefore we ought to show discernment in that way. So... All right, so we respect the authority that God has given them, respect God's ultimate authority. When appropriate, we stand up for injustices and we, we give these grievances in a way that is honoring to God. But what if they don't respond in a positive way? In this scenario, Saul actually did relent from killing David. In this case, <laughs> two chapters later, he actually went after him again. And he went after him again, okay? So, but in this scenario, it seemed to work, right? He showed respect. He pleaded his case. Saul relented. He went away. Um, and actually, it is somewhat ironic. 
verse 22, Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up into the stronghold. So they didn't go back home. They're like, eh, we're going to wait and see, right? We're going to wait and see what Saul does. So in, so in our cases, in our scenarios, what if you go and you give your grievance to a boss, but they actually make things worse for you? Okay, they don't say, you know what, you're right. I was mistreating you. I'll treat you kinder. They say, oh, so you're going to play that game, huh? Well, I'm going to make it harder for you. I'm going to make it even more difficult for you at the workplace. What about um, a teacher, a parent, someone you go to and try to talk through an issue, and instead of responding in an understanding way, they actually respond in an angry way and think that you're maybe giving a personal attack to them. So how do we respond in that case? Really, this is the ultimate test of our faith. Because when we respond respectfully, take our grievance, and people change, we like that, right? We're pleased with the outcome. But when it doesn't go our way, when people don't respond in a way that is honoring to God and upholding justice, that is the true test of our faith. That is the true test of where our allegiance lies, of who we're really trusting in. We see that David trusted in God's sovereign power. The same God who drew Saul into the cave and allowed David to sneak into the camp unnoticed is the same God who was powerful enough to protect David and to deal with Saul. So David placed his trust, knowing that, again, his men were saying, this is God's hand. His providential hand has brought Saul here, so get rid of him. But David realized, yes, God brought him here, but God can also protect me if I let him go, and I honor him in that way. And in our scenarios, when we honor God, even if it's not a good outcome at that moment, we can know that God is still in control, that he is still powerful, he still has a purpose in mind. So he trusted in God's power. He trusted ultimately in God's justice. Verse 12, David said, May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. David did not place his trust ultimately in his own power. And if we know anything about David, we know he was a pretty good fighter, right? (laughs) We think Goliath with a sling, bear, lion. Um, He slaughtered hundreds of men, okay? He could fight. He knew how to use a sword. That wasn't the problem. But David realized that that was not his place. He knew that vengeance ultimately rests in God's hands that he is the one that we ought to rest in. Again, in verse 15, May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Even if if Saul had not relented, which we see him doing here, David still placed his trust in God. So when we face injustice, we must rest in God's sovereign control as the ultimate judge. That God is going to judge evil. Sometimes he does now. Sometimes we see it in front of our eyes, true justice being served. But many times we don't. And many times in those scenarios, we have to realize that ultimately God will judge. In the end, on the last day, God will judge evil. All of those injustices that we have been, um, that have been wronged against us will ultimately be vindicated on the final day. Our job is not to deal finally with evil and injustice. Our job is to honor God in the situations we find ourselves in by respecting the authority and by honoring God who has placed us in that scenario. So I opened by describing the plight of two men. The first man was in an authority position he felt slighted by his superiors. He responded by killing four law enforcement officers 
and family members of law enforcement and by wounding three others. He took vengeance into his own hands, attempting to clear his own name at the cost of his and others' lives. He died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound with police surrounding his hideout. If, if uh, you're following the story here, this man was Christopher Dorner, the infamous South Car- uh, Southern California shooter who died attempting to take justice into his own hands. He tried to defend himself from perceived injustice, although it's, it's questionable whether how just or unjust it was. But regardless, he perceived it to be unjust. unjust. And so he took justice into his own hands. He did not respect the authority of the law and definitely did not respect God's final justice in the end. The second man was innocently taken into custody by the authorities, as I mentioned. He responded by respectfully going with them, even showing kindness to the authorities who arrested him. His defense before the leaders largely consisted of silence, though a few times he did question the reasons for arresting him but he did not lash out. Ultimately, they found him guilty of a reverence to God, essentially a trumped-up charge just to get rid of him. In the face of execution, he never lashed out in anger or tried to harm the authorities. In fact, he went so far as to state that there was more to live for than this life and that his purpose in life was to tell and show others that truth. In the grip of death on a Roman cross, he even asked God, to forgive the very men who killed him for their actions. He publicly placed his full trust and confidence in the Father, who alone was worthy of living and dying for. Jesus, the innocent God-man, died a death he did not deserve, providing an example for us to follow by trusting God as the ultimate judge. As badly as you might have been mistreated or are mistreated by a boss, by a parent, by someone in an authority position, Jesus endured far greater injustices in his death on the cross. His death, however, is not just an example to follow. Because if we stop there, ultimately, we can't follow Jesus' example perfectly. We are going to fall short. But the the great news, the hope of the gospel, is that Jesus' death was not just an example to follow. It was the ultimate payment of God's justice for all sin. He wasn't just an example of someone who honored God to the end. His death bore the wrath of sin on our behalf. The reason we can ultimately trust that God will deal justly in the end with all the injustice we, we feel, all the wrong we feel, is because He's already dealt the death blow on the cross of Jesus. The death blow against injustice has already been dealt on Jesus' cross. The curse is broken. One day, evil will finally be judged and consigned to hell. Until then, until that day, as we live now, we must respect those who wrong us. Defend our innocence, yes, when appropriate, but ultimately place our trust in God because He sees all things and He will settle all things in the end. So are we allowing God to be the judge? Is, is the thought of God ultimately judging in the end, does that dominate our minds when we are in a situation of injustice? authority leaders, government, bosses, loved ones even sometimes, our response ought to be that God is the judge. We ought to let him have final say. And that ought to affect the way that we live and interact with others. Let's close in prayer. God, I thank you for the truth from this passage and the example that we find of, of honoring you in very difficult situations. 
I ask God that we would learn from the example of David and, and seek to honor the authorities placed in our lives. And ultimately, I ask that you put, help us to put our confidence, put our trust in the finished work of Christ as we remembered this morning by partaking of, of the Lord's Supper. That we would realize that we can have hope that evil will be finally conquered and punished because of the death of Jesus. And that we can have hope and security that we are in Him and therefore will not be judged for our sins. Help us to remember and to realize that if it was on the basis of our actions, we deal unjustly with others all the time. We deal harshly. We deal, deal selfishly with others. But because of Your mercy, You have delivered us from the payment of that, of that sin, the result of that action. I ask God that You would help us to think in a way that honors You, to respond in a way that, that praises Your name, and that we will ultimately place our trust in You as the, the judge who will deal with all things in the end. We thank You and praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.